Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. This episode is brought to you by Pioneer. At Pioneer, our name is our mission. What's next happens here. Today, I'm visiting with Dr. Aaron Hager. He is an associate professor of extension in weed science at the University of Illinois, and we are going to be talking about post-harvest weed mitigation. Dr. Hager, let's start off our conversation here today by learning more about you and your background. I actually was born and raised here in Illinois, grew up on a farm in the west central part of the state. Really, throughout my teenage years, my aspirations really never extended much past the farm. Went through most of my years of high school thinking I'd just take over the family farming operation, but I discovered there were two people in in life that did not agree with that idea. One was named Mom, and the other was named Dad. And they said, no, you are going on to college somewhere. So long story short, I was fortunate to do an undergraduate degree at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. Then went to Michigan State University for a master's degree. And while I was there, uh, got to know one of the fellow graduate students who he left about a year before me to take a position in the Champaign-Urbana area with, with one of the companies at the time. And just so happened, he called me one evening and said, hey, there's a position open at Illinois. It's a non-tenure track, so you don't need a PhD for it. You know, just thought I'd pass that along to you. Lo and behold, that was about 30 years ago now that we had that conversation. Moved back to Illinois, began the role as an extension weed science specialist, uh, finished a PhD, and was very fortunate to interview for an open faculty position. And Long story short, I graduated high school 35 years ago, been in college ever since then. Probably haven't been smart enough to leave college yet, so... That is pretty impressive, Dr. Hager. So you have been with the University of Illinois Extension for your whole career. It'll be 30 years this coming back. Wow. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's a long time. Thank you. All right. Well, as we begin our conversation today on post-weed mitigation, uh, post-harvest weed mitigation, that is, Mm -hmm. just to get us started in general, what are the benefits? Why should we be mitigating weeds after we get done with harvest? You know, it really depends, Lori, to some extent about which type of weeds are we referencing here because, you know, following harvest, we can think about, well, do we want to try to do something to manage any of the winter annual species that germinated and emerged this fall if we're really not planning to do a lot of aggressive fall tillage? So fall herbicide applications for controlling winter annual species that's a practice that's really been generating a lot of interest over the last oh, probably decade and a half to two decades. And instead of trying to wait and manage this very dense, generally fairly large and mature weed vegetation in the spring, you know, a lot of folks have realized if we can make a timely herbicide application following harvest in the fall, we can greatly reduce the amount of vegetation that's there that we have to contend with next spring. The other thing we talk about in terms of of fall weed management, for example, would be if we have issues related to species that grow either as biennials or as perennials. Because generally speaking, the fall would be a better time of year to make an application of a herbicide that moves or translocates down to the rootstocks of these perennial species and gives us much better control than we could with basically the same herbicide treatment, but applied in the spring of the year. 
So really fall you know, weed management takes a couple of different, uh, you know, quote unquote flavors, if you would. But it is still a good time to, to be thinking about, well, do we want to do something now? Or at the very least, after harvest, of course, we always say that your last weed scouting pass was the cab of the combine. That, generally speaking, is, is what you make your last assessment on. How well did your weed control program work or not work this year? And then if it worked fine, do we maintain that? Or if we had some issues with it this year, can we better understand what happened and then try to make possible corrective measures going into the 2023 season? Dr. Hager, of the discussion points I had for you today was scouting for weeds, and you just talked about from the cab of a combine. Do you also recommend that growers walk through their fields in order to scout? Oh, yes. Uh, really, the, the scouting is really the fundamental background of, of a good weed management program because you really have to know what you have. And really, the only reason to be to know or ability to know is to actually get into the field and take that scouting walk across that field to know, okay, which species are we contending with? Do we have areas of the field where maybe we have patches of another species, for example, that is not across the entire 40 acres, but over here in this corner, it's pretty thick over here, and we really need to pay attention to that as well. And so without that, you know, the boots on the ground, so to speak, is really difficult to come up with, especially when we're talking about any kind of a foliar applied herbicide, Number one, which product do we need to select based on the spectrum? Number two, what application rate do we need to consider? And then number three, of course, what other combinations of products may or may not be required based again on, well, we've got pretty consistent weed pressure, but yet we've got that little patch over here again. Well, do we need something different to take care of that other species that happens to be in that little patch? If it's a little patch this year and we fail to control it, more than likely it's not going to stay a little patch next year. That leads right into my next question. At what threshold does a grower decide to put money into weed control, Dr. Hager? I sort of joke around a little bit with folks when I tell them, you know, for the 30 years that I've been doing this gig, I've never done one thing. I've never made one recommendation that's ever increased a farmer's yield by one bushel. That's not what we do here. We basically, when we manage weeds, we are in what we refer to as the yield preservation. So in other words, that soybean variety that a farmer selects or that corn hybrid that farmer selects, right? Based on its genetics, it has a genetic yield potential. If we give that crop everything that it needs, all the space, the water, the sunlight, the nutrients, et cetera, et cetera, that allows that crop to try to maximize that genetic yield potential, express that genetic yield potential in the highest yield possible. These little other little plants that we call weeds, okay, they're basically have the same growth requirements as that corn plant or that soybean plant. So in other words, all these other plants are doing is basically limiting the resources available to the crop. So we talk about controlling weeds. Really, we need to think more about managing weeds because of all the studies that have ever been published about weed and crop interference. There's never been one published that I've ever seen that shows that weeds increase crop yields. It doesn't work that way. It's always the other way around. 
So the presence of weeds is only going to function to reduce that crop yield. So the reason we go through this exercise of trying to think of it this way is that every farming operation has their spreadsheets, right? You have your input costs and you have your revenue costs. Obviously, herbicide costs are a fairly significant portion on that spreadsheet of that input cost. Now, we can reduce those down. There's a lot of different ways that we could do that. Maybe it's only product selection. Maybe it's adjusting application rates, timings, et cetera. But we always have to remember that if we reduce that input cost too much for weed management, that could impact that revenue column. And it would impact it that the crop doesn't yield as much because the weed interference persisted either too long or was too much to allow that crop to express its genetic yield potential. So weed scientists don't increase yields. That's what plant breeders do. And they're really, really good at that. Again, when we think about inputs to manage weeds, we're trying to preserve that genetic yield potential of that crop. Where would you say is the best place to start when creating a post-harvest weed management plan? It can start, you know, a lot of people begin thinking about their, their next season weed control at this time of year, right? So again, we visited earlier in the, in the interview that we've had our last scouting pass by and large right now from the combine cab to see how effective our weed management program during the 2022 growing season was like. Well, if everything was spot clean, maybe there's not a lot of reason that folks are going to make dramatic changes moving into 23. If we start to say, well, you know, we've got a few scattered things here and there that, you know, at the end of the year they were there. Well, can we go back and determine, okay, why are they there? Were these perhaps weeds that maybe came up late in the year? You know, if you're talking about a weed species like uh, hop horn beam copper leaf, for example, not a lot of people are familiar with it, but we've never seen that come up until after the 1st of June. It's not competitive really with crops but it can be still green at this time of year. Or is it something like one of the pigweed species, like the water hemp or the palmer amaranth, or maybe even smooth pigweed? Why are these plants still here? You know, did they come up maybe after our early season post-application? Were they actually there and simply we did not control them because, well, maybe they've evolved resistance now to whatever that foliar applied product was that we used this year. So, you really can't begin too early because there's still a lot of factors that we're trying to process through the 2022 season to make any adjustments that maybe we can do to be more, even more successful in 2023. We'll take a break right here for a word from our sponsor and be right back with the show. You know how they say the most important thing in real estate is location, location, location. Well, location is critical to seed innovation as well. That's why Pioneer invests millions every year in local testing, more than 17,000 on-farm trials. It's all to ensure that you can plant seed proven to perform in fields just like yours. Because at Pioneer, our name is our mission. What's next happens here. Learn more at pioneer.com slash next. The Successful Farming Podcast continues now. We are talking about post-harvest weed mitigation. I'm Lori Boyer, and my guest is Dr. Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Extension Weed Science at the University of Illinois. Of the things I was going to talk to you about today is timing when it comes to post-harvest weed mitigation. You did address that before we took a break. Are there any other notes with regard to timing? Especially when you talk about foliar applied products, it's, it's easiest to summarize that it, it's very difficult to be too early 
but it's terribly easy to be too late. And yet again, the too late part of it, don't think of this only in terms of, well, maybe now because the weeds are larger, we have to increase the rate of this fully applied product. That may be one concern. But again, think of this in terms of the interference of those weeds with that crop. The longer those weeds coexist with that crop, the greater the likelihood that they're going to reduce that genetic yield potential of the crop. So again, we may spray early. That's probably a much better recommendation than waiting to spray when things are, you know, at or exceeding what the label recommended size are. And Dr. Heger, any notes on temperature? Temperature really has an impact, especially on, again, on our foliar applied products. We generally like to see, you know, temperature somewhere between the 60s and 80s would be a really good range. We can still have good activity outside those ranges. But generally speaking, that's going to be sort of the, the quote unquote sweet spot, if you would. Now, when we get into very low temperatures, for example, if we're thinking about making one of these fall applications now, today here as we sit here uh, speaking, you know, our air temperature right now is about 70 degrees. Excellent temperature for making an application this fall. Three days from now, our high is going to be 32 degrees. And so that's probably not going to be the best because in order for those foliar applied products to work, they have to get in through that leaf surface. So if the temperatures are too low, that basically means there's a pretty good likelihood that that weed vegetation, it's not actively growing. And if it's not actively growing, that herbicide, that foliar applied herbicide might have difficulty trying to get through that leaf cuticle. Now, on the flip side, if we talk about extremely high temperatures, a lot of times then the conversation shifts just a little bit away from the effect of weed control to what could be the effect in terms of enhanced crop injury. So generally speaking, the higher the temperatures, especially with some of the contact type herbicides, we could typically see a little bit more crop response than we would if temperatures were in that, you know, again, in that quote unquote sweet spot range. Dr. Hager, let's talk now about weed size relative to the amount of product that we should be using. You know, it's very interesting that you ask that and bring that up because the labels, and again, primarily of our foliar applied products where this applies more, the sizes of the weeds generally are calculated or tabulated, if you would, following multiple years of field research before these products ever even get to the marketplace. So you look at a label, you look at the species that are listed there, you look at the recommended sizes, and then whatever that application rate is for that size. More times than not, those are not just randomly selected sizes. There's been a lot of work that's been done multiple locations over multiple years that says, you know what, this product on Cockleburr, we're fairly effective up to about six inches. However, if it's something like pigweed, we're only effective to two inches. And so we always encourage people to really pay attention to what these sizes are listed on the labels and try to get those applications before you exceed what those maximum sizes are. Because, again, the likelihood of seeing issues related to performance, poor performance, increases as those weeds get larger. Very interesting information, Dr. Hager. Another question I have for you is how do growers select what product to use? There's a lot of different factors that really influence what a farmer is going to select for their product. 
it could be based a lot on previous experience. Have they had good experience? Have they had good results with a particular product from whichever company it may be? Um, generally speaking, when there's a new product that comes into the marketplace, most times farmers are not going to switch all their acres to it. They may try it on a few acres, try to see how it works. Are they comfortable with it before they uh, make a decision in future years? Are they going to use that on more acres or are they not going to use that on, on any more acres? There's also other things to think about in terms, and, and again, this is a very common issue these days, certainly more so than it was 30 years ago. What problems or challenges might you have in a particular field with a species that has evolved resistance now to one or more herbicides? So, for example, our biggest issue that we contend with year in and year out here in Illinois in corn and soybeans is the water hemp problem. Now, water hemp is a very interesting species because it's always been in Illinois. Basically, it's indigenous to the state. It's always been here. But we've only recognized it as a separate pigweed species really for only about the last 25 to 30 years. And part of the reason it is a challenging species now is because of how it has evolved resistance to herbicides relatively quickly over the last two decades. So 30 years ago, we could basically control water hemp with dozens of different herbicide active ingredients. Now we're down to a very few that will effectively control it in either corn or soybean. And so that's something that also is going to impact a farmer's decision. You know, what are the driver species that they're contending with? And is it a driver species simply because it can be a difficult weed to control? It can grow very quickly. Or is it difficult to manage because of evolved resistance? So, you know, for example, if it's water hemp, the challenge there is, do we know which products are still effective? If it's something like giant ragweed as a farmer's driver species, then that switches the conversation to what types of products can we have to try to maintain control of this species because of how fast giant ragweed can actually grow. We'll take a break here and return with the show right after this. There's nothing like seeing a big number on your combine's yield monitor. The seeds of your harvest started here in the Pioneer Research Lab, where we use advanced breeding technologies to bring seed innovations to your fields faster. So you can be confident that Pioneer will help you enjoy more harvest moments year after year. That's what it takes to earn the name Pioneer. What's next happens here. Learn more at pioneer.com next. The show continues here today. Once again, I'm Lori Boyer. I'm talking with Dr. Aaron Hager. He is an associate professor of extension weed science at the University of Illinois. Dr. Hager, right before the break, you talked about evolved species. One of the questions I have for you then is, can weeds mutate or become immune to chemical treatment? Weeds are very successful. They've been here longer than we have been, and they will be here long after I'm gone. They're, they're simply plants that have very adaptable nature to them. And even within all these different plants that we we refer to as weeds, you can see differences among these species. Now, for example, we talk a lot about water hemp. Other people have to contend with another pigweed species called Palmer amaranth. Now, what actually helps 
these species become even the more of a challenge is the fact that both water hemp and palmer amaranth have a biology that we call dioecious. And what that word means is that any water hemp plant or any palmer plant that you find in, in nature is either male or female. Okay, so the males produce the pollen, the females produce the seed. But here's the catch. There's no biological law that says all the pollen needed to fertilize all the female flowers has to come from one male. It doesn't work that way. So in other words, if you had a female plant, let's say she's going to make 500,000 seeds. That means she has 500,000 flowers. Theoretically, she could receive pollen from 500,000 different male plants. So if you think about that in terms of genetic diversity, you know, you're, you're talking about species here in the water hemp's and the palmer amaranth that have a huge amount of genetic diversity. Well, when you're, you know, when you're in a laboratory or if you're a breeder and you're trying to make gains in yield, you typically have much more success when you're working with crops or species that have a very broad genetic base to it instead of a very narrow base to it. Works the same way with the weeds. Okay, we've got species that have a great deal of genetic diversity. These are the ones that tend to have the ability to adapt to changing farming practices either faster and or more efficiently than other weed species that do not have that wide of a genetic diversity. What are some suggestions for optimizing chemical applications? It's something where it's the herbicide active ingredient. That's what controls the weeds. It's not anything else that you put in that tank with it. Generally speaking, you know, the only thing that we typically do when we start adding more and more things with that herbicide application is increase the likelihood that we're going to have, you know, some issues with that. Issues maybe in increased crop response or poor performance of, the, of weed control. So just understanding that, you know, these things have to have some decent, quote unquote, conditions for them. to they're, they're not magical, right? They have to have adequate coverage. They have to have the appropriate additive. We have to pay attention to, you know, spray pressure, volume, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The more things that we can optimize during these applications, whether it be, again, the volume, the spray pressure, the timing on the weeds, as we've talked earlier, recognizing the appropriate tank mixtures, for example, if we have a broad spectrum of weeds to try to control, the more of these things we optimize, the more we're going to have success with these products. Dr. Hager, can you explain this to me? What is multiple effective sites of action? Multiple effective sites of action, herbicide action, is really a concept that's been discussed literally for decades. And if I could take us back maybe 25, 30 years, there was always a question that we never really had a good answer for. And that is, when we talk about, again, the evolution of herbicide resistance, there was always debate about, is it more effective to slow the evolution of resistance by tank mixing products, or is a more effective strategy to rotate herbicides? And so several years ago, actually our, our weed science group in Illinois finally answered that question. And I won't go into all the details, but essentially what our research showed is that having effective tank mixtures 
was about 80-fold less likely to evolve resistance compared with simply rotating one herbicide to the next. So when we say multiple effective herbicides, what that means is that, okay, if it is whatever that species of concern is highest, and again, we'll just use a water hemp for example, can you find two or more herbicides that you could use in combination that that particular population remains sensitive to? So in other words, if you can still have effective control with glyphosate, with a foliar-applied PPO inhibitor, it would be better to combine those two together compared with using glyphosate this year and rotating to a PPO next year. That's what our work showed. That work was published about eight or nine years ago. The work that we did in that project was really focused around target site-based glyphosate resistance. So without a doubt, you know, we still stand behind the findings that effective tank mixtures is more of an effective strategy to slow the evolution of resistance as compared with simply rotating. But nowadays, we're not necessarily as focused on target site-based herbicide resistance. Now we're doing more and more research with what we call non-target site. And typically what we're contending with, what we're dealing with when we say non-target site, is the ability of the weeds to actually rapidly break down or metabolize the herbicide before it can cause some type of phytotoxic effect. So in other words, the effective tank mixtures, that research was based on target site resistance mechanisms. We don't have a similar data set yet for non-target site. So we generally think, at least cautiously think, that Tank mixtures may still be the most effective recommendation to make when it comes to metabolic resistance, but we always remind our audiences when we talk about this, the fact is three years from now, maybe five years from now, we could potentially learn something that says, you know, tank mixtures is the worst strategy for metabolic herbicide resistance. We just simply don't know. And if you have somebody who tells you that this is absolutely the best answer, the most effective answer to deal with metabolic herbicide resistance, my suggestion is I would not recommend that you buy anything from that person because they have no idea what they're talking about. So the only thing that we really know for sure right now when we talk about either target site resistance or metabolic resistance is this. If there's no weed seed produced at the end of the growing season, that is the win. Okay, that's the only thing that we know for sure, because if there's no seed, there's no change in the frequency of the resistance characteristic. If we had one female water hemp plant that successfully made seed at the end of the year, that seed may contain perhaps even a brand new type of herbicide resistance that we haven't seen before. If there's no seed, that's the win. Dr. Hager, let's now talk about farming practices. What are some best practices that growers can do to help with weed control? We now see a lot of farmers who are electing to plant most of their soybean crop before they plant their corn crop. And when I started 30 years ago, that never happened because, well, we're Illinois. We plant a lot of corn first, then we'll plant soybeans when we get done with corn. But a lot of that paradigm has changed. And that makes you think about, well, 
do we manage weeds differently when we're now planting soybean first and in many cases much earlier than we ever have before? That's one thing to think about. The other thing that goes along sometimes with this is, well, if we're now planting soybean early, do we need to remember what did we actually use last year in the corn crop? Is there a potential that by planting so early, we may run into some issues related to herbicide carryover? So those are some, you know, some changes of the mindset. A, a really good example of how things have changed over time. There was work that was published from the University of Illinois back in the early 1970s. And this work was focused on giant ragweed. And the conclusion of that work essentially predicted that giant ragweed would never be a weed species that Illinois farmers would have to contend with. Now, if you made that statement in areas of northern Illinois or southern Illinois and some of the bottom areas where giant ragweed is such a problem species, you might get run off the farm because it is a huge problem for a lot of farmers. Well, but what that work focused on, that was measuring the duration of giant ragweed emergence in the spring. So what happened was the researchers went around the state and they collected giant ragweed from various fields. They brought it all back to Champaign-Urbana and they performed what's called a common garden experiment. They planted the seed and they essentially just monitored how late did the giant ragweed emerge. Well, guess what? All the giant ragweed that was going to come up for that year was up by May 1st. Okay. Now, remember, this is work that was done in the late 60s because it was published about 1970. If you think back to the late 1960s, we don't necessarily farm the same way today that we did back in the 60s. When I was growing up, it was common to see a lot of black snow in the wintertime. Why? Because all the fields had a moldboard plow in the fall. We don't do a lot of that now. Back in the 60s, we didn't plant half of our corn crop or, or greater than half of the corn crop before the 1st of May. It's a doable thing to do that now. And back in the 60s, before we planted any corn, we generally had a tillage pass right before the planter. Well, now if you put all these pieces together, if you had giant ragweed that it was going to be done by May 1st and we weren't done planting by May 1st and we always worked the ground before we planted, all that giant ragweed was controlled by that pre-plant tillage pass. Okay, made sense. That was the reason for that statement that giant ragweed would not be a problem for Illinois farmers. That experiment was repeated about 15 years ago. Obviously, our timings have changed, our practices have changed. And so the researchers went around the state. They made collections of giant ragweed from various fields, brought it all back to Champaign-Urbana. They did something a little different this time that they didn't do the first time. They also had one or two seed collections from areas that had never been farmed. I think one of them, they maybe went to a back corner of a cemetery somewhere and got some giant ragweed. Maybe the other one was a, a woodlot or something like that. And they put those in that common garden experiment again. So what they found this time was that the giant ragweed that had been collected from fields, from agricultural production fields, now instead of all germinating and emerging by May 1st, what they found is that now they can have germination and emergence of giant ragweed throughout June, even into early July. That's a big difference from all of it coming up by May 1st. Here's the, here's the kicker. Here's the interesting part. 
those one or two populations that they included in that experiment that had never seen agricultural production, they were done emerging by May 1st. So in other words, giant ragweed as a species has evolved to how we've changed farming practices over time. So we talk a lot about how weeds change over time. The fact is they do. And to your point, to your questions, as much as we can stay ahead of them, as much as we can remain aware of what they're doing, that puts every farmer in a better position to try to successfully manage these weeds in the current and in future growing seasons. In working with farmers over the years, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have run into or that they have run into when it comes to weed control post-harvest? We've seen a lot of changes that have taken place over time. Back in the late 1990s, we had this new technology that pretty much swept into the soybean industry. It was called the Roundup Ready Soybean Varieties. And that made a lot of fundamental differences in the entire industry. We used to have probably 15 different companies prior to the glyphosate-resistant soybean introduction that had active herbicide discovery program. Our program at Illinois in the late 80s, early 90s, may look at five or six, maybe, brand new active ingredients every year. We would look at those in research well before they would ever get to the marketplace. But when the glyphosate-resistant technology came in, that really fundamentally changed so much of the industry. Now we have about three or four companies who have active screening programs. We don't see new active ingredients with near the frequency as we once did because so much of it has changed. The costs of developing these new products are astronomical. In today's dollars, you're probably looking at $300, $350 million to bring a new active ingredient into the marketplace. That's going to take maybe eight years, maybe 10 years, okay, between when that molecule is first identified until you have your first sale. Well, we talk about how weeds are adapting, right? That's a very, very difficult decision for companies to make. Do we advance this compound knowing it's going to be eight years into the future with the uncertainty about whether or not it's going to be able to control the driver species in eight years. True story I'll share with you. Several years ago, we had our national weed science meetings. I arrived at the airport and just happened by, by, circumstance, by happenstance to run into one of our former graduate students. And we shared a cab ride to the hotel. At that time, this student was working, was employed by a company that had an active herbicide discovery program. And on the way to the hotel, he, he was telling me the story. He said, yeah. We actually had a brand new herbicide site of action that we were advancing through our screening trials. And I said, well, what happened to it? And they said, well, we screened it against some of these water hemp populations that have resistance to herbicides from multiple families. We couldn't control it. So they put that brand new mode of action on the shelf. So it's, it's something where, again, some of the best advice that we can give folks Take care and steward the products that remain effective today because we're not going to see a lot of you know, brand new revolutionary new products, or at least not the magnitude that we once did. That time in the industry is gone. We'll see some new herbicides that come in over time, but it's going to be much less frequent than what we used to be 
be able to see these new active ingredients again back in the 80s and the, and the 1990s. So stewarding what we have that still remains effective is very, very important moving forward. What a great interview this has been here today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Extension Weed Science with the University of Illinois for joining me here today. This podcast has been brought to you by Pioneer, creating the next generation of seed for the next generation of farmers. For the Successful Farming Podcast, I'm Lori Boyer.